Well, I want to welcome everybody to Father's Day and to the incredible things that are going to happen. And when we think about June, very often we think of Father's Day, but there's something else that comes up every June that we also lock into, and it's the idea of graduations, which brings the whole thought of school and tests and everything else that occurs. For a lot of college students, they're finally done with those things they dread called finals. And I don't know if you heard about a guy who was an art student, and it was an art major. And uh, to graduate with his degree, he could not get anything less than a B in the area of his major. And, and in the human anatomy class, he had turned in his final drawing to, to get his final grade. It was weighted so heavily, it did dictate what kind of grade he would get by the end of the, the semester. And when he got it back, his heart sank. He had been given a D. After the class, he went up to the professor and he looked at him and he said, Professor, um, I, I don't understand. How, how did I get a D? And the professor took the drawing and looked at him and said, well, look at it. He said, this guy's head is malformed. I mean, one ear is higher than the other. His nose is in disproportion to the face. The student said, okay, and he walked out. The next day, he came walking into the art professor with the his friend next to him, he goes, uh, professor, and the professor was looking down, and he said, um, I want you to meet my model for the art project. And the professor looked up at his friend and goes, oh, um, okay, you get an A. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard about another class that happened. It was a philosophy class. And when all the students came in for their final, the professor walked out. He said, everyone, get your blue books ready. He said, today you're going to be asked one question on the final, just one question, and here it is. And he flipped a chart that came up, and a big whiteboard had one word on it. It was the word why. And he said, all right, I want you to write on this, and this is your final. And the professor walked out of the classroom. Well, one student was sitting there, and, and he thought for a second, and he wrote, and he walked up and laid his blue book on the table, and he walked out. The professor came back in, saw it, opened up the blue book, and the question why had an answer, because. Because. And supposedly that professor gave that student an A. Now, I don't know about you, but that raises a question in my mind. And that's why we did not get a professor like that when we had college. But there's another question that comes with it. And, and that is, what would we answer what is the answer to the why of your life? What is it that makes you do what you do? What causes you to get up in the morning? What causes you to, to, to be excited about your day? What causes you to live life to the fullest? What is the why that motivates you? And I want you to know that God's great desire is for you to come to know that. And if you come to know the right answer, it's this. You were created by God with a very special destiny in place, not just to do one thing, but many things. But he created you and made you out of love to live a life of significance, a life that matters. And when you start being who God made you to be, and you start living the life that he has for you to live, I want to tell you, you're going to live the greatest life ever. Now, we call that around here level four living. And if you haven't been with us, I want to make sure you understand what that means. Level one is, is for people who are, are spiritually seeking. You're asking all the questions. You want to know, okay, why was I born? Why do we exist? Is there anything really to this life? Or am I just this cosmic accident or mistake? Uh, uh, you might ask, you know, why are there so many religions? And, 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 and why does Christianity say it's the only one? And then you might even finally get to the question of Jesus. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Does the cross of Christ really matter? 
And you ask all these questions, and then hopefully you come to an answer. The Bible does teach something, though. It says, if you really seek for God with all your heart, you will find Him. If you really search for Him with everything you have, you throw yourself into this, God said He's not going to hide out from you, you will come to know Him. So that's level one, you ask these questions. Level two is where you finally say yes to God. And that's called conversion. And in that place, you begun to enter into a real relationship with God. It's beyond just a mental ascent, this is real and true. It goes to a deeper level of me actually understanding that God loves me and cares about me. That I have sin that needs to be forgiven and cleansed. That I have hurts that God now can heal. And then he calls me to live this life with him. Now here's the key. Not just as my God, although he is my God, but you come to know him as your father. As a matter of fact, hopefully you come to know him as your Abba Father, your daddy. And, and, and I hope that that's how you would enter a, in, in, in a relationship with him that's incredible and intimate. And so level two is conversion. Level three is connecting with God in very, very deep ways. And we do that in lots of ways, but it becomes a, a part of this real intimate relationship where you're growing and knowing him and realizing how much he loves you and wants to, to lead you in your life. And we're going to get to that in a second. Then level four. And a level four mentality is where you immediately begin to say to God, not my will, but your will be done. Where you say, Lord, it's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and in my life just as it is in heaven. And Jesus, when he was faced with a, a choice, whether he was going to follow through a plan that God had for him, he said those words, Lord, I know it won't be easy. I know it's not going to be the, the most pleasant thing. As a matter of fact, God, it's immensely painful. But God, not my will, your will be done. And Jesus ended up shaking our destiny and changing our lives because he held to that. And then he showed us something. When you and I live that way, when we give ourselves to God like that, what happens is we begin to end up experiencing the greatest life we ever could. God loves you. God cares about you. And God wants to lead you in your life. Uh, one of my all-time favorite verses to answer the why question is one that that. Actually, I want to get ready for this. There's a, a mistranslation here, and, and I'm not sure why, but, but I want to be able to show you something that you may not see immediately unless you do some study in this, and it's from Psalm 48, verse 14, and here's what the verse says. For such is our God. This is who our God is. For such is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Now, now the, notice the personal nature of what this person's saying. He goes, this is, this is such as our God. How does God relate to you and how does he relate to me? Well, we're going to learn two things about how he wants to interact with you. But he says, you've got to understand something else first. It's very personal. Such is our God, our God forever and ever. He's always going to be ours. He's always going to want to have this relationship with you. He's always going to want to have you know him. And then it says, when you come to know him, then two things actually happen. Number one, he will guide us. God's great desire is that you don't live your life independently, but you live your life dependently on him. That you live your life in such a way that he literally guides your very steps. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10 says this, says, for I know, O God, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. In other words, he said, I've learned something about you. It's not for me to individually decide where I go. It's not for me to direct my own steps. In other words, he got a hold of something. He said, the more I'm around you, the more I realized you have a will for my life, a plan for my life that includes my very steps, each step I take. God wants to guide you. Uh, the whole idea is that the, it says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. 
In other words, that God, if you're righteous and you're good and you live your life the your way you're supposed to, God will actually ordain and order your steps. He has a place he wants you to go. Now, you need to know, and I need to know, we have a choice in this. And here's the question I want you to think about right now. Are you, is God truly the guiding force? And is God guiding your life? When you say those words, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, he wants to guide you. He wants to lead you. And, and God even warns us not to, to go off on our own. And it, it's interesting, one of the most favored and treasured passages in all the Bibles in Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. In all your ways acknowledge him. And then in the middle of it, it says something very interesting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, if we're going to live the kind of life we need to, there's times God may take us to places and have us do things we don't totally understand. But my most important point I want to grab for me, and I hope you grab for you, is that God wants to guide you. Here's the thought, though. The word guide in that Hebrew is the Hebrew word that has two meanings. It means, number one, to drive. Uh, The whole idea that God is our driver. In other words, he at times kind of moves us and guides us by driving us to a place he wants us to go. And God is the one who needs to be in the driver's seat. Is God in your driver's seat? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I really like to drive. As a matter of fact, whenever we get a group of people together, maybe from our staff or a family or whatever, you know, and someone goes, who's going to drive? I mean, I'm like, I'll drive. Uh, a matter of fact, we bought the car I have so I could always drive people. And, and I, I got to be honest, maybe it's my own control freak kind of issue, but I almost can't stand it at all when someone else is driving and I have to sit there. Now, I've told you before that I'm probably one of the worst drivers there is. Maybe I, I, I just want to get to heaven sooner. I don't know. Uh, the other day, we were driving through San Francisco, and Pam and I were on vacation, and I literally was terrorizing Pam as I'm driving along, and, and she's going, are you, like, you know, are we late for something? And I'm like, no, but, you know, driving in that San Francisco traffic, I was having the time of my life, and, and Pam is freaking out, but she's having to go with me because I'm the driver. When God is the driver, And I want to tell you, sometimes it's relaxing and sometimes it's hectic. But the bottom line is, is he wants to take you somewhere. And so, is God the one causing you to turn to the right or turn to the left? Is God the one orchestrating the direction you go to? Is he the one guiding your life because he wants to? Is he the driver? The second meaning for the word guide is the word to orchestrate. And that describes so well how God interacts in our life. He orchestrates our life. He takes all the experiences we have. He takes our past, knowing our future and our present, and he orchestrates it together to cause you and I to live a life that's truly amazing. And I hope that's how it is for you. Now, again, I'm not saying easy. And I'm not always saying that life is fair. And I'm not saying that everything always works out in the moment. But God is like this great conductor. He's an orchestrator. He takes all the pieces of our life like a great orchestra and different sounds and different instruments and different tones, and he causes something beautiful to come of it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Yet God has planned everything and made it beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, People cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Now, we can't always see how it's all going to fit together. We can't always see the scope of the great work of God. But here's where we're going with this. That God causes everything to be beautiful in its own time. Now, the word everything means everything. That means that God is able to take my hurt 
my pain and my failure, the things that brought me devastation to the core of who I am, and he's able to do it for you, and he's able to take that somehow and work it for good. Now, it doesn't say that God causes everything to happen. He says if you love him and you cling to him, that he's going to take some of the greatest pains you've ever experienced and somehow turn that into something amazing. And I want to tell you that I've seen God do that. I've uh, gone through some, uh, in the past few years, some things that were pretty, uh, pretty hurtful uh, and maybe even almost horrific. And uh, I look back now and I say, God, how did you take something like that and turn it into something beautiful? Well, you know why he does it is Romans 8, 28, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, and we know, and I want to key in on that word, we know, not just think, not just believe, not just psych ourselves into it. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, God doesn't cause everything to happen. Sin is not God's will. People betraying others is not God's will. Uh, uh, Some of the horrible things that occur, a lot of people say, how could God cause, he doesn't cause that. And I want to say that that there's a saying that, well, everything happens for a reason. No, not really. But God is able to make those unreasonable things reasonable. He's able to take something painful and turn it into something beautiful. He's able to redeem the most bitter thing that could ever happen and cause good to come from it. And you and I, if we are a level four kind of person, God will do that. Catch what it says again in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, but there has to be, uh, 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 you have to understand, two things have to take place for this to occur. It's to those who love God. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And the question right now is, do you love him? If you do, then God wants to literally say, I'm going to take your life and make it a a life of transformation, a life where I'm going to take things and orchestrate your life, the good and the bad, the the pleasant and the painful, and I'm going to bring them together in a way that your life's incredible, and I want to guide you and orchestrate you in that. If you love me, but there's one other thing, and to those who are called according to his purpose, Now, you and I are not going to experience God in this way if we don't, number one, know him as our God. He has to be our God. He has to be our Father. But number two, we must love him, and we must have determined to live our life according to his purpose. I want to ask you to really, really put a check on your life right now. Start asking this. Can you honestly say you know him and that you love him? And can you honestly say that you're living your life according to his purpose, the purpose he has for you? See, a lot of people want to live life according to their own purpose and ask God to bless that. If you do, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and I'm not saying God won't love you. What I am saying is you won't, and you won't begin to experience the leading of God. Your life will never be what it would be if you would put it in the hands of God. And so what I, we need to do is we need to throw ourselves in completely. We need to say, God, you know what? I want to be completely yours. I want to live my life completely for you. I want to experience you in an amazing way. And that's God's great desire for you. Are we living a life according to his purpose, the life he has for us? Are we living the life we were made to live? Are we fulfilling our destiny? And I hope that you are. And I got to tell you, when you get around people who are, man, all of a sudden you start experiencing a passion and excitement and a contagious enthusiasm because, man, they know what it means to really, truly live, to live the life that Jesus calls us to, the abundant life. But a lot of people are not living that life. 
They're actually living a maybe sometimes a life that's far less than because they're being destroyed. They're being stolen from. They're being ripped off. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus warned us. He said, there's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus said, but I've come that you might have life abundantly. So we have this choice. It's like on this side over here is the life where we're being ripped off and, and it's not as good as it could be and, and, and we're missing out. And over here is this life that's abundant. And Jesus said, are you ready for this kind of a life? Do you want the abundant life? He wants it for you. He said, I've come to give it to you. And this is such is our God, our God who guides us, who guides us in that life, who makes things somehow work together for good if we love him and live our life according to the purpose. A lot of people, though, are not experiencing this because they're leaving, living a cheap imitation of the real thing. Now, I, I got to tell you, that's, that's a concern because what happens is people who I've even met and know and I care about have, have become Christians, but they're not living the life that they were meant to live because they're not living it according to the power of God. They're not experiencing a Holy Spirit anointed, led life, a life empowered by God, led by God for God. And, and, and again, I'm not even saying at that point, you know, they're not Christian, but I want to say it's a concern and there's a danger that some people might even think they are and are not because they've missed out on something. It's a cheap imitation of what could really be real. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, it says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I think this is intriguing because we're in the last days. Uh, we'll be digging into that more later, but I want you to grab this. That as the end comes, as Jesus' return is imminent, he says certain things are going to begin to start growing in, 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 in what's occurring. Now, these things have always happened, but they're going to they're become more visible. They're going to take on a new life of their own. And what are these things? It goes, for in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. They will be brutal. They will be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And, and, and hopefully... You, you haven't forgotten what it says. God is able to cause all things to work together for good for those who love God. But, but he says in the last days, people aren't going to experience that because they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're lovers of comfort. They're lovers of having things their own way. And uh, in verse 5, it says this, they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then it says, avoid such men as these. Avoid people who hold to the form, the, the cheap imitation of what it means to be a godly person and to live a godly life. Avoid that and cling to and, and, and hold on to people who know not just a form of godliness, but the power that goes with it. And that's the danger. You know, that people go, okay, I'm going to, to you know, maybe even read my Bible or pray, but they don't know what it's like to have answered prayer and God speak and move. They don't know what it's like to have their faith grow. They don't know what it's like to have God lead them. God guide them to have God in the driver's seat. He's showing them life, taking them on the most amazing adventure ever. And, and very often, again, that's going to be sometimes going into the battle or even having to give up something in the moment. Why? Because God's ready to give us something so much more. And, and he says, avoid people who don't know the true power of what it means to live for God, who, who don't understand it. I think that means that we ought to be on the search for people who are genuine. 
Soren Kierkegaard, one of my, my favorite philosophers, said this. Kierkegaard said that he would travel the world to find one true Christian. He said, then I'd never leave a sight. And you know what I got to tell you? I get to be around people who really have a love for God and a passion for God all the time. And, and when I read what Kierkegaard said, he felt like it was so few and far between in the area of the world he was in. And I think that can happen in places around the world. But I want to tell you something, that, that God's real and God's alive and God has a life for you. And you ought to seek it with everything you have. And when you find it, you ought to grab hold of it and never let go. And you need to let him be the driver and let him be the guide because he wants to do that for you. Dwight L. Moody, when he was very young, was challenged. A, a man looked at him and said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is totally devoted to him. And Moody, when he heard that, decided, I want to be that man. And God used him to literally shake the world that he lived in in his day. Literally, uh, it went beyond the United States and beyond the Chicago area and beyond his home. And the ripple effect was amazing and incredible as he put himself in the hands of God. Do you have a desire? Do you have a desire to be the kind of person who's wholly devoted to God? Do you have a desire to live that kind of life? And if you do, then Jesus has something to say to you and say to me. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you really want to be that person who loves God and live your life according to his will, according to his pleasure, it says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits its soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know what, if you give yourself to God, you're going to find fulfillment to the depth of your soul. But Jesus said, if you're going to do that, lots of times you're going to have to deny me and you're going to have to take up a cross. In other words, are we ready to live our lives under the cross and the shadow of the cross? Are we really ready to live our life completely for what Jesus calls us to? And literally go step by step as he leads and guides. Jesus said, if you're going to come, you've got to follow me. And that footsteps that I give, you need to step in. And you need to take the path I have for you. And you need to deny self at times. Now what's really interesting at the end of Psalm 48 verse 14 is this. It says again, remember, for such is God our God forever and ever. And then it says he will guide us. And in the English it says until death. It's interesting to note that when you study that, that's not what the Hebrew says. It says he will guide us until we die for the son. Now that's S-O-N, not S-U-N. Such is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us till we die for the son. Now, to me, that's very intriguing because that's the accurate translation. And, and God was showing us something, that one day he would send his son. And one day his son would be so incredible that we would want to literally live our life in such a way that we would be ready to die for him. And Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And, and the whole idea of the cross is the idea that we would be willing to die for him. And in Psalm 48, it says, such is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us till we die for the Son, till we give everything for him. Maybe physically die, but definitely die to our dreams and hopes and desires so that we might attain the great destiny, the great fulfillment he has that are beyond those that make our hopes and dreams and desires pale in comparison. And in the midst of this verse, it's almost a hidden thing in the English, but not in the Hebrew, where God 
God unveils something to us. My son will give you life. My son will give you joy. My son will give you an abundant life that's incredible. And are you ready to come and, and live for him and die for him? Are you ready to take up your cross and be under that shadow of the cross? Now, it is interesting that throughout Scripture, when you study it, you see the sign of the cross showing. In Numbers chapter 2, we come to a section of Scripture, and God begins to tell the people how to camp. Now, it, it's always interesting to me as a pastor that when I ask people to read the Bible, and they get into Leviticus, and they get into Numbers, it, it's understandable. I, I do know this. You've got to take the time to study, and very often you need someone to help you, guide you through some of the cultural issues of understanding things back then, and, and, and some of the deeper things that are there. But, but where I'm going is this, is that, that God begins to tell the children of Israel, I want you to camp in a certain way. I want to have my presence, my tent of the meeting in the dead center. And then I want the, the, the tribe of Judah to be on the, the north, and, and, I, and he begins to tell every tribe where they're to be and where they're to camp. And then when they, they leave, they, they exit a certain way in a very clear marching order, so it's very orderly and not chaotic, because millions of people are having to march. And when they come to a time of camping, they're to camp with the, the presence of God at dead center. But when you study Numbers chapter 2, something very intriguing happens. If you take an aerial view of the children of Israel and their encampment, and they were told very clearly where to camp, you begin to see something. They camp in the shape of a cross. Every time they gathered together, every time God called them to unity, and he called them to encamp, and he called them together, they always formed the shape of a cross. So as God looked down upon them, he saw a cross and a sign that one day his son would come and would give his life for us on a cross, and that that very son that we are going to be willing to die for would also tell us to take up our cross, to take up our cross and go and live. And so what would happen is the children of Israel would camp in this way. God showed us in prophetic way, even in the encampment of the children of Israel, what was coming. I think if we begin to look at a lot of things, we begin to see the sign of a cross. Uh, Louis Giglio sparked a minor controversy over uh, the idea of what's called a laminin. Now, a laminin is a glycoprotein that promotes cell adhesion. That's what the actual definition is. But, but a laminin is literally the superglue that holds all of our cells together. Uh, uh, it would not even be accurate to say without it you would die because that's not accurate. Without laminins, you would not live. You would not exist. Your body would not be held together. And so it's interesting that when you begin to look at what a laminin looks like, it actually is in the shape of a cross. Now, that's what Louis Giglio said. And when you go to medical journals, you can see that. And when you but, uh, begin to look at it in nature. Now, it, here's why it's a controversy. Because it, it, that's been said, and because Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and he holds all things together. What is it that holds your body together? Well, it's a laminin that looks like a cross. You're literally held together by something in the shape of a cross. And, and now, like I said, the controversy is, is that true? And so what happened is uh, different people have written, of course, in medical journals it looks like that, but in nature does it really. And, and according to trutherfiction.com, they quote uh, Dr. Peter Elkbaum and Dr. Rupert Tempe, 
who are the two leading experts on laminins, and here's the quotation. They say this, electron microscopy reveals a cross-like shape for all laminins investigated so far. So, you know, if you go out of here and say, well, you know, is that true? I, I got to be honest, I'm not a medical expert, but two medical experts who aren't really espousing a Christian worldview really said this, that every single one of them that they've found so far in investigation, look when they're found in their natural environment on the body in, in the shape of a cross. The whole point is this, that, that the Bible says, whether it's referring to this or not, that Jesus holds all things together, that everything was created by him and everything was created for him, that you were created by God with a destiny, a purpose. He wants to guide you, such as our God, our God forever and ever. He guides us, and he guides us till we die for the Son. And so our lives are to be marked by this, uh, a life that's lived with Jesus, for Jesus, uh, under the sign of the cross, the cross of love, a cross of grace, a cross of hope, a cross that we're to take up, meaning we would say to him, not my will, but your will be done. And we would go live with him and for him. And, and when we look at the camp of Israel, and we look in nature, and we look at Psalm 48, 14, God is telling us, look at the sign of the cross, and let that be what holds you together. The children of Israel in the time of Ezekiel began to waver. They, they began to descend into all those horrible things we read about, being brutal, being haters of good, not being people who lived the life according to the power of godliness and the life with God. So God showed Ezekiel a vision, and in the vision an angel would come. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 9.4. It says, The Lord said to the angel, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in their midst. Now, now I want to have you think, because I want to have you understand why I'm sharing this. He was told, go through the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on men's foreheads. Now, the mark was to be put on the forehead of anybody who, who loved the things of God. They sighed and they groaned over people being hurt, over people being maimed, over people being betrayed, over death. Over, over, over in people who are in poverty. They sighed and groan over people who are wasting away with disease. They sighed and groan over people not caring and loving and marriages falling apart and children not knowing what it's like to live in a home with a mom and dad who love each other. They were to sigh and groan over that. And, and, and all the things that break the heart of God, they would sigh and groan over. And, and he says, what do you do with people like that? He said, you put a mark on their forehead. The word mark is the Hebrew letter tau. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in the oldest form, at the time of Ezekiel, it was the shape of a cross. The literal there is this. He says, I want you to go through the city and find people who have a heart after me, who are committed to me and my ways, whose heart breaks for the things my heart breaks for. And you put the sign of a cross on them. Because they live their life in a godly way. They're my people, and I'm not going to miss it. There are people who would literally say, God, you guide me. You drive me. You orchestrate my life. I am not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust you with everything I have, and I'm going to experience you. And, and here's where we're going. Is this your God? The psalmist who wrote that says, for such is our God. This is my God. This is our God. He He's my God forever and ever. I'll never leave him. I'll never not be his. And he guides my life. And I want to ask, is God the guider of your life? And do you let him guide you till you die for the son? Till you are live your life under the shadow of the cross? Um, Jim Elliott is a man who 
many of us who are Christians admire because he literally died for the Lord. Uh, he was a, 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 an incredible athlete, an accomplished man in many areas of his life. He felt God's calling, and so he committed himself to be a missionary. He thought, I want to take the ministry and the message of Jesus to unreached people who don't know about him. He wanted to take the cross, the sign of the cross, in the very uh, uh, most outreach-oriented settings for people who had never heard about the love of God. So he went to Wheaton, and while he was at Wheaton College preparing to go into this, uh, a, a young girl, a freshman, came named Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth first set eyes on Jim Elliott, she thought he was the most incredible man she'd ever seen. And the more she watched him and got to know him, she thought he had a heart like she couldn't imagine. And she was younger in school, and all the girls loved, you know, Jim Elliott. But she, she actually prayed, God, one day I'd like to have a man like that. And what happened is the Wheaton students had gone to do some work in the inner city of Chicago, and he and her happened to be in one area of a dilapidated apartment building that they were helping to restore so people could have a quality place to live. And they came walking out, and they looked around, and nobody was there. And then they rushed down the stairs and went outside, and the bus was gone. They were so caught up in doing their job, they didn't notice that it came time to leave and that everybody else had left. And they were laughing and thinking, what are we going to do? And this is before cell phones. So they only had one option. That was to walk back to Wheaton, which was going to be a long walk. But they thought, well, let's just make the best of it. And, and to be honest, Elizabeth Elliot said she was so excited because that meant they got to have one-on-one -on -one alone time together and she would get to finally talk with him and know him and so they're walking along together and they're talking about their hopes and they're talking about their dreams and, and in the midst of it he's saying things to her that make her realize hey wait he knows a lot about me <gasps> and man her heart is leaping and getting excited and and then he looks at her and he says you know I got to just tell you something Elizabeth he says you know what every time I'm around you I I'm, I'm 